0: today we are starting a brand new series called Ordinary People Extraordinary Faith. Uh, I think this is going to be good. I'll tell you what, um, just I, I'm just kind of riffing here. This year, God has led us into some really powerful studies, if I say so myself. I'm not, not tooting my horn, but the Holy Spirit is leading us into some truths this year. And uh, we've had three powerful series so far. We started the year off with a series called 2020 about our identity, who we are in Christ. And then, uh, of course, back then we had no idea what an exciting year 2020 was actually going to be. You know, it was like the Lord's teaching us who we are in Christ. And then all, you know what, broke loose. And uh, and so that was exciting. And then we went uh, to our next series, which was called Kingdom Manifesto, which really drilled down into what our mission is. We know who we are in Christ, but now what is our manifesto? What's our mission? And that delved delved into uh, the Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew chapter 5, the teachings of Jesus, what we are to do uh, with who we are. And so that was was good. And then we just got finished last week. Melissa finished us off our series called Unleashed. We looked at some Some things that have kept us in bondage, that keep us in bondage in our minds and in our hearts, keep us from growing. Uh, Things like addiction and unforgiveness and fear and doubt and these kind of things. And so, really powerful series. And so, I, I encourage you, if there's any of those things that you missed, go back and check them out. Uh, praise the Lord for modern technology. You can go back and, and watch some of those series that we've talked about in the past. But this one, I'm excited because Ordinary People, with Extraordinary Faith, we're going uh, to look at some stories of several unlikely heroes in Scripture that I believe is going to motivate and inspire and encourage us to be all that God wants us to be and I'm, I got to tell you there's just something about the spirit of this series i'm ready for uh, there's something it, it, this you know th- these past few series like I said uh, they've been powerful and they've been kind of deep and it's kind of been like uh sh- you know just sort of really getting in there and contending in the faith to hearing what the, the Holy Spirit says to us, I think this this series might be is going to be a little bit of some fun. And so I'm ready for that. Um, we're going to see how these ordinary people used by God do extraordinary things, and we're going to see them at their best. We're going to see them at their worst. We're going to see their successes and their failures. We're going to look at men and women uh, over the next few weeks. And so this is a great series to bring your kids to. Uh, they can come and be inspired. Your sons and your daughters are going to be inspired by uh, some of these heroes also you know we 're very cognizant of kind of because of the uh, the special circumstances we have the kids in here, so some of these stories uh, we're going to be we're, we're uh treat carefully some of the events that happens in the stories can be very violent. Uh, how many of you, if you've ever read the Old Testament? No, <laughs> there's parts of the Old Testament that probably would be rated R if it were made into a movie. And so we will tread carefully in some of those scenes uh, so as not to scar your children. Um, but, uh, and, and you can uh, we'll leave that to you for you know your devotional time during the week to get deeper into some of the events that happen. But today I'm excited because we're going to kick off this series, uh, with a classic underdog, someone who was the unlikeliest of heroes, and that is this man by the name of Gideon. Gideon. Uh, And putting this together over the last month or so, there's so much just really juicy stuff in this story. We didn't want to rush through it too much, so we're going to actually take a couple of weeks with Gideon before we move on to the next hero of faith after this. So this is part one of this, and I love the story of Gideon, uh, for a number of reasons, it opens up all sorts of interesting questions, and people always come away with really fascinating questions from this story of things like how do we discern the will of God? Um, how do we step out in faith even if we 're insecure and unsure? Anybody ever been unsure and insecure? Yeah, it's, for some of us that 's a lot of times. and so uh, how do we step out in faith even in those times when we don 't feel like a superhero? Um, This story also gives us a glimpse of how God comes alongside us to help us fight our battles, and not always in the way we expect him to, not always in the way we want him to, but he comes alongside and he does his thing. And Gideon especially also surprises us because he's not only an unlikely hero, he's in many ways a very flawed hero as we're going to see in his life. He doesn't show perfect faith that we would think of. Uh, he doesn't even show perfect character when you get towards the end of his life. Uh, and yet, Gideon is mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the hall of the heroes of faith. He's mentioned there, not as, a, as, a, as someone who did it all wrong. He's mentioned as someone that we can emulate because Gideon is just a, the sort of ordinary person with all ordinary human weaknesses that God can unleash his strength through, right? In his weakness, God is made strong, and so we see that in this story. That could be very inspiring. God unleashes his strength through us to bless other people. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Judges chapter 6 this morning. The scriptures will be on the uh, screen, of course, as always, but um, it's always good to read along in your own Bible there. Let me lay down a little bit of context for you and the the history that's going on here, because it's kind of exciting to me that we're going to dive into. The book of Judges is interesting. (laughs) If if you've ever read through the book of Judges, there are parts of it that are very inspiring. There are parts of it that are downright horrific. Um, I would not pick Judges as the book that me and my uh, six-year-old little girl are going to read through from front to back at bedtime, right? Because she will have nightmares, it's an it's, it's a interesting book. It, the book of Judges tells a chapter in the history of Israel that comes right after they've entered the promised land. They've, you know, they were, God rescued them from Egypt, they've gone through the, the desert, they arrive at the promised land, the walls of Jericho fall, all that good stuff. And there you have the book of Judges. It comes in this era after they've entered the promised land, but before the age of kings, Solomon and David and Saul and all those guys. In the book of Judges, they have no single unifying ruler. There's no government. These 12 tribes of Israel all just sort of coexist in this strange tug of war um, with other nations around them, sometimes with each other. Sometimes they just get in fights and kill each other for no reason at all. It's crazy. And in fact, one of the phrases used over and over and over in this book, it'll it'll keep this refrain, says, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they pleased. So you'll hear this story, and it's this crazy story, and then at the end it'll say, and you know, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they pleased. And that's kind of, it's sort of the Wild West. This is kind of, the Book of Judges is kind of like, you know, that, that time in American history when we settled the West and the cowboys were running around, but there's no real government. Everybody's just sort of bang, bang, shoot, shoot, give me your gun, you're dead, you know, give me your gold, that, that sort of thing. So that's kind of, it's the Wild West of, of Israel's history. One other theme in Judges is that Israel is living out this perpetual pattern that we see over and over. It goes on generation after generation, and this pattern usually starts with a time of being blessed by God, a time of prosperity. Everything's good. There's peace in the land, and it might be that way for a few decades, and then they're experiencing the prosperity and peace and security, and then something happens, and the people start getting prideful, uh, really full of themselves. They start turning away from God. They get complacent. They get this attitude, well, I guess we are all of that, right? I guess God really does love us best, and we're just, he's given all this blessing to us because we deserve it. Um, and inevitably, their faith starts to spiral, and they start living sinfully. They start worshiping false gods, and the only thing that God can do in many, one of the things that God does uh, in this time to reel them in and get their attention is to allow calamity in their lives, to allow these things to happen, because he loves them too much to just let them destroy themselves. And so there's these periods where it seems like God removes his protection and allows just the world to kind of happen to him. Um, uh, and, and so predictably, what happens is they call out to God, oh no, everything's going wrong, and they call out to God to, to save them, and uh, they, to send them a deliverer. Uh, they're like, we need a superhero, we need somebody who will come in and save us, and you know... Uh, whatever this calamity is. And so, what happens is God sends them what's known as a judge, the judges. Um, and a judge is interesting. It's not a king, but it's kind of like this combination of prophet and tribal leader. They're sort of these holistic heroes, they're a little bit political, a little bit military, religious. Kind of a little bit warlord. <laughs> the, the, the judges come along, and, but what they do is they come together, and they, t- they come in, they take care of the calamity, whatever is going on, um, and uh, they, they usually destroy the idols, and they call the people back to serving y- Yahweh again, and God's people will celebrate, and there's much rejoicing, and everybody says, yay, we love God again, and He loves us because we must be all that. And that happens for about a generation, and then God, after this time of peace and blessing, and the cycle starts all over again. It's, it's, it's a little bit depressing, actually, when you see the way this thing happens. All it takes, in fact, is one generation. And we see that. That's an important truth to, to learn from this. One generation to come along and inherit the peace and the blessing of their parents and to assume, well, I guess this is what I was born into. This is what it means to be an Israelite, right? Uh, we're just God's chosen people, and this is what I deserve as a child of God. And and then it starts all over again, which is an interesting lesson, I think, for us today. And that lesson is that every generation has to make the choice to follow God. Every generation, and that's true for us today. Every generation has to make the choice. As I've said before, God has no grandchildren. He only has children right? He is not the heavenly grandfather. He's the heavenly father. God is not just sitting on his throne doling out cookies and silver dollars to the kids, you know, because they're cute. He is a heavenly father. He actually wants to raise us and mature us and grow us in relationship with him. And he's willing to show his love by not necessarily spoiling us with every little greedy thought we have in our minds, right? like a father, like a good father, like a good mother. He is. We say he's the he's the father with a mother's heart. And so that's who God is and what that means for us is that you're not part of God's family just because uh, your parents were part of God's family. Amen. God doesn't have grandchildren. Every generation has to make that choice for themselves. Am I going to follow the way of Jesus or do I think I'm just going to inherit my parents' blessing or that God loves me extra much because, you know, my forefathers were Christians? God doesn't have grandchildren. The family of God has no grandchildren, only children, and so we call ourselves, even, you know, here, you're experiencing right now a tribe that calls itself Generations Church, and that's an intentional name, Generations Church, and that's because every generation needs to make that choice for themselves to obey the call of God, every generation. Our parents can't do it for us, right? And I know that very well from personal experience, right? As great of parents as I had growing up, I had to discover that for myself. I had to make, you know, that decision for myself at some point in my 20s. No, I'm going to come back. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to make him my God, right? And my kids are learning the same thing. My kids have to find God for themselves. It, what I, the faith that I have found doesn't work for them. And it's why your children, too, need to be a part of this faith community. It's so important. It's so important. And even during this age of corona, you know, they're they're part of this faith community as much as you are. Because they're not going to experience, they're not going to soak up the leftovers, even no matter what a great experience you have with God in your prayer closet. They're not going to soak it up by osmosis. They have got to experience the Holy Spirit for themselves. All right, so we see this pattern continuing here in Judges chapter 6. I want to look at the last line in Judges chapter 5 in 531 so we know where we are. What does it say? Then the land had peace for 40 years. It's just what I said. They just went through, all it takes is one generation, remember. They just went through this whole round of disobedience and oppression and crying out to God, and God sends them a judge by the name of Deborah. She's an amazing woman. We're going to look at her in a few weeks, and uh, she is a boss. Uh, Anyway, but that's an awesome story. So 40 years now of peace, and then we find in the very next verse... Israel once again go back to worshiping idols, and once again they're being oppressed by a foreign power. Uh, this time it's the Midianites, Israel's arch enemies next door, and we'll start reading verse 2 here. It says, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. So from one end all the way, Gaza at the Mediterranean Sea. So it's the whole country. Did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. It says they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. Interesting fact, this is the first time in the Bible the camels are mentioned as an instrument of war. Uh, they invaded the land to ravage it. Midians so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. It got so bad, they actually had to turn to God. Imagine that. That's how bad it got. <laughs> and what do you think God did? Does he abandon them? Isn't God still doing this? Isn't this such a picture of the heart of God? However much we turn our back on him, however much we walk away from him, we cry out to him, and this is the heartbeat of God. He is right there. He doesn't turn his back on us. He's right there to take us back when we fail or when we fall. He's right there. So so here he is, and what you know what's strange, and I wish this wasn't the case, but so often it is the failures in life, the the tragedies, the mistakes we make. It's in those times that we tend to turn our hearts back to God. I wish it wasn't Times when I fail the most, when, when my heart turns back to God and I run and seek Him. But I've seen that pattern in my life in the past too. And so often that's the case. And we seek Him, and, they, and, and these times sometimes they remind us that ultimately we rely on God. We thought we were all that. We thought we had a good job, right? We thought the economy was clicking along and everything's going great, and this is just gonna last forever because we're the chosen people. Guess what? Right? who do we rely on? We rely on God. That's right, Sharon. We rely on the Lord, and sometimes these times, God doesn't bring them. I don't believe God brings calamity, but He will allow things to happen in our lives in order to allow our hearts to hunger and thirst for Him more, so that we cry out to Him, because God wants to be our Savior. He wants to be our Savior, right? He wants to be in closer relationship with us. And sometimes the thing that we're crying out to Him for really is to fix our circumstances. That's the thing that's most important to us right now, right? I mean, when you've lost your job, when you're sick, something like that, what do we cry out? God, fix the circumstance. And yeah, God's faithful and He will be there. But I think even more important to God in some of these times is just the opportunity to have a closer relationship with His kids. Amen. I think He treasures the opportunity to get, have a have close relationship even in those times when we are too busy or too blessed to, turn to, to, to have time for Him, God is always waiting for us to turn to Him. Now, we're about to get a clue just how bad things have gotten, how far down this spiral that Israel has fallen here. It turns out they're not just sort of like being a little complacent. Israel has turned to full-on worship of pagan gods. Now, this is, let me just remind us of something. I've talked about this before how the ancient Israelites are called by God, and he makes them his people. Sometimes we expect Israel to just walk around, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, to just have perfect knowledge of everything. Remember, they spent 400 years in Egypt, 400 years in Egypt, and there is no Bible. I mean, remember that, right? There's no Bible while they're in Egypt. So 400 years, God calls them. He makes them his people. He speaks to them, but the Israelites are still a product of their age. They're still a product of that, that uh, Iron Age, Mesopotamian, 1200 B.C. culture of their time. And so we have to see them in the, you know, the, the contextual con- uh, uh, culture that they live in. In that era, in all those countries, m- worship of multiple gods was common. It was just common. That's what everybody did. You worship multiple gods. That's what everybody did. And so just because they are called by Yahweh and they believe Yahweh is the supreme God, they actually, some of the scholars are are, are looking at the writings and, and the archaeological evidence too of that day, and what we're realizing is they wouldn't come to recognize God as the only God for hundreds of years that took a while, that kind of, it took, they had to progress to that place, right, they just weren't all of a sudden, they had perfect knowledge of who God was, they were learning who God was, and so this is an interesting, and it also explains a lot when you look at the scriptures, and you kind of understand, they were serving Yahweh, but they still had this idea that there's these other gods, and Yahweh was kind of the chairman of the board, you might think of it that way, and so, in fact, they wouldn't come to recognize Yahweh as the only God in existence until years later, after or during the time of kings, the kings of Israel. And so, what we have here is there's a little bit of Yahweh worship happening here, but they also have, they're also worshiping the gods of their neighbors. They just want to cover all their bases, right? They don't want to make any of the gods angry. And so, they're, they're also, there's the god of crops, and there's the god of rain, and the god of war, and the goddess of childbirth, and all that. And it's just so ingrained in their, their cultural psyche, they haven't yet fully embraced what we would call monotheism. Uh, in fact, there's a term that scholars use today, rather than think of those early, early Hebrews as monotheistic, there's a word called monolatry. And it, they hadn't, they've, they'd gone away from polytheism, where you worship all the gods, but they hadn't quite gotten to monotheism. There's this word monolatry, which means that you worship one god, but you acknowledge that there's a bunch of other gods too. And, and so that's kind of where we, we believe Israel kind of is, just the average Israelite. If you went up and asked him, you know, what's the deal with all the gods? He would tell you, Yahweh's in charge, but we're pretty sure there's these other gods too because that's what everybody believes. They're just products of their culture, and they wouldn't really get it, in fact, until the worst happened to them, which is total conquering and total exile by the Assyrians. Hundreds of years later, when they are sitting there's, there's these uh, psalms where they're sitting in Babylon, and they're weeping, and, it's, and it really starts, mentally, it starts to break through. Wait, the God of Israel isn't just the God of that geography over there. He came with us. He's, he's still our God over here in Babylon, and that's when the lights turn on, and they realize he's not just the greatest God, he is the God it's really interesting when you read the scriptures. I'm, I'm going off on a rabbit trail here just because I'm a nerd about this stuff, but when you read some of the scriptures after the exile, post-exilic uh, scriptures, the, the language is very different. He's not the most high God. He is the God. It's really cool. Anyway, so at this time, they're still not sure. They're learning about God. They're, ha- they're having to learn. I mean, even Christians today, we have the Bible. We have the Holy Spirit. We still argue about the Trinity, right? We're still learning. We're lear- all of us are learning who God is. Um, So God, at this time, He's trying to draw them. He's trying to draw them. This is what He's got to work with, these people. He's drawing them closer. He sends them prophets. He sends them judges to call them back into relationship with Him. And it's actually out of love, the Scriptures tell us, that God has been allowing these Midianites to harass Israel for about seven years at this point. It tells us that every harvest time in the fall, as Israel's gathering their harvest, these Midianites would swoop in, these raiders would swoop in among them and would steal their crops, steal their cattle. Everything they couldn't steal, they would destroy. They would burn their villages, kill their cattle. So every harvest, this was happening now. Now, I'm imagining that would get really disheartening after a while, right? Uh, And I think we can relate. Every year, you do all the planting, you do all the, the cultivating, and come harvest time, here they come to raid the villages, steal your food, destroy your animals. It says they're like locusts just swarming through, just devouring everything. And so it's finally gotten to the point, it says the Israelites see them coming, and they just, they take off. They abandon their farms, and they just go hide in the caves until the raid is over. Kind of feels like a pandemic a little bit, right? Right? You just you've done all this work, and now you're just kind of left hiding out, sitting at home, watching your life be ruined, waiting for this thing to pass. This is kind of what the Israelites are going through. And so at this point, we're introduced in Judges chapter 6 to a young farmer by the name of Gideon. Let's read. The angel of the Lord. Okay, this is pretty cool. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, and that belonged to Joash, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Okay, so Joash is the dad, Gideon's the son, and notice what he's doing. He's threshing wheat which is usually done in that day on a hilltop. So the wind, you throw it up in the air and the wind takes away the, you know, the nasty bits and the wheat falls down. And so, uh, but the Midianites would see him on the horizon. So what is he doing? He is down underground in a cellar like a scared rabbit trying to prepare a little bit of wheat to live on, to live, to eat. And here appears an angel. And how does the angel greet him? When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, you mighty warrior, you. Your translation might say uh, a valiant warrior or brave warrior. That's his greeting. He calls him valiant, mighty, brave warrior, which is fascinating because up to now he is anything but that. He's just a farmer. That's it. That's his track record. You know what this tells me? God calls us He he looks upon us according to our calling, not our condition. He looks upon us according to our calling. It's not about what we've accomplished so far or what we're struggling with. God looks and he says, I see in you all you can be if you're willing to get on board with my plan. That's our God. Friends, God believes the best in his kids. Isn't that good news? He believes the best in his kids. He's not pessimistic about you. Up to now, Gideon has been defined by his weakness, by failure of him and his whole culture, but God chooses to see him with eyes of vision. God sees who Gideon can become. Okay, but as we could imagine, Gideon's filled with questions. God says, the Lord is with you, but Israel is being trounced by the Midianites. (laughs) You're just getting clobbered here, slaughtered. So Gideon here He actually has an honest conversation with God. In verse 13, he says, pardon me, my Lord, he replied. I love the uh, common English Bible here. The translation uh, says, excuse me, but with all due respect. You know, that's going to be a good conversation that follows whenever someone starts their talk with me. But Scott, with all due respect, I know what's about to follow is anything but respect, (laughs) right? With all due respect, that's the best. Oh, good. Let's get into it pardon me, my Lord, with all due respect, um, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? If God is with us, why are we suffering? I mean, those are honest words, aren't they? God doesn't strike him dead for asking this. That's like the ultimate question here, isn't it? I mean, tell me that hasn't flitted through your brain over the last three months. Lord, what did I do so bad that all this is happening? around me. If you're saying God is on our side, God cares about us, God loves us, how come there's all this bad stuff happening? And, and, and it's encouraging that the saints of the Bible are asking this same question. He goes on to say, where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they told us about the stuff that the Lord had done in the past when he led us out of Egypt? Where are those wonders? Have you ever asked that question? God, why aren't you working miracles today like you see in the Bible? you know, you hear about a miracle every once in a while, but why aren't you working those kind of miracles? Well, it turns out characters in the Bible are asking the same question. Isn't that interesting? The days of the exodus out of Egypt for Gideon are already ancient history. Gideon's is saying the same thing. Why aren't you working those miracles of old? And God's response is so interesting. He doesn't debate with Gideon the metaphysics of the origin of evil, he doesn't respond that way. He responds by teaching Gideon that his attention should be not on where all this has come from or who's to blame, but how can I respond? In verse 14, the Lord turned, turned to him and he simply says, go in the strength that you do have. Go in the strength that you have. Go in the strength that you have. God says, you know, Gideon, I'm not, I'm not going to swoop down I'm not going to repeat myself. I'm not going to work the same miracle that I did before with your ancestors. I'm not going to do the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. He says, instead, I'm going to use you, I'm going to use the strength that I have given you to respond to the problem of the time. Isn't that a good word for us today? And I'm the same way. We will ask, Lord, Perform the big, mighty, amazing work. Perform the wonder. And God is like, you're the wonder. You're the amazing, mighty work. Do you remember the miracle that I have done inside your heart? The person you used to be and the person you are today? You're who I'm going to use. You're who I'm going to use. So we say, God, thank you for that Help us, give us, Lord, every morning we just should ask God, help keep us alert to how you're moving around us, and let me be a part of that, how you want us to partner with you. The angel says, you go and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Am I not sending you? Hey, Gideon, who's, who's right in front of you here, right? Who's sending you on this mission? So why, what use is it to ask why this is happening? The emphasis should be what we're going to do about it what we're going to do about it. You know, Jesus encountered this same thing. Uh, He teaches us in the Gospels that the disciples, we see that the disciples are often preoccupied with why do people suffer? Whose fault is it? Which was actually a, a, a good Jewish question. That was a Jewish worldview that they got was you were blessed for doing good things and you're cursed for doing bad things. I mean, that's just the way the world worked. And so it came natural to them to say, well, bad things are happening to you. What would you do wrong? Right? That's what Job's friends were asking him. By the way, the book of Job blows that out of the water. Right? That doctrine. But Job's friends are like, well, what did you do wrong? All this to happen. And Job's like, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know why it's happening. So the, the disciples asked Jesus one time. There was a, a blind person. And they were asked him, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's, that he's blind? They want to turn this man's suffering into a theological discussion about the origin of evil. Who sinned? Who's at fault? What's really happening here? And Jesus says, shut up. It's in the Greek, right? (laughs) Jesus says, it's not a matter of who sinned. That's not the issue. He says, this is an opportunity for God to show up in glory. That's what this is about. This is an opportunity for God to show up in glory. Jesus shifts the emphasis to say, you should be asking the question, how can I be used by God to respond to suffering? that should be our response, church. How can I be used to respond to suffering? Oh my gosh, what kind of world would it be, my friends, if every hour that we spent right now trying to figure out the metaphysics of the origin of evil or trying to argue over the right people to blame and all the issues going on around us, instead we said, how can I respond in the most most practical, caring, loving ways? How can I respond in the most practical, caring, loving ways to the suffering around me? How can I live my life that way? See, I can live my life pondering and obsessing over all the philosophical questions, all the political issues. I can live my life that way, and I will die with those questions still in my head. Or I can live my life trying to respond in a loving, practical way of making a difference in the world. Anybody with me? Amen? All right. So God ultimately says Gideon, you're going to be the answer to your question. You're the answer. God, I'm going to use you because you are the mighty warrior that you're you're waiting on whether you realize it or not. But Gideon still has some issues. In verse 15, "Pardon me, my Lord." Here we go again. The pardon me, my Lord. With all due respect. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. So his clan, his family is the weakest in Manasseh, and Manasseh at the time was one of the weakest, least populated in all of the tribes of Israel. And he says, and I'm the least in my family. So Gideon has some insecurities I think we can relate to. This is not some larger-than-life Marvel hero, right, who's all sure of himself. This is a regular guy. Not only that, he's kind of a scaredy cat, right? He's a nobody scaredy cat from a podunk tribe living in a podunk village called Ophrah, which in Hebrew means place that is dusty. (laughs) He literally lives in dry gulch, right? In the Old West, dry gulch Israel, the place that is dusty. That's hilarious. I looked that up. I was like, what? (laughs) Oh, you can't make that up. And apparently, apparently he thinks he's the runt of this unprestigious family. So he's like, "Who, who am I? Who am I? and we do this, don't we? Don't we do this? We belittle who we are. We belittle where we've come from. We immediately list in our minds all the credentials that we don't have. That's what we, that's what we do. We immediately start thinking about all the education that we don't have, the character traits that seem to be missing in us that we seem to, everybody else seems to have but me we think, I don't have, I don't come from a great family of success and power. You know, I don't, I don't have this great family tree. I come from like a family weed, you know. <laughs> who am I? And the Lord answers Gideon in the same way he answers us today, that the issue is not who you are, it is who you are with. Who are you going with? Amen? And this is what the Lord says. The Lord says, I will be with you. And you will strike down all your enemies. The issue is not who you are. It's who's going with you. So Gideon says, he's not done. He says, well, this sounds pretty crazy. I'm going to need a sign. Um, So I know this is really you talking to me. Remember, in Gideon's mind, there's lots of different, you know, gods out there. uh, And he's going to need a sign to know this is really the, the big guy, the Yahweh. So he runs off, it says, to prepare a meal. It's like an offering uh, of some goat meat and a bunch of bread. Sounds delicious. And he brings it to the angel. The angel touches it with his staff and it explodes in fire. That's pretty cool. And so Gideon says, okay, that's good enough for me. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And so God gives him some instructions. First thing he says to do, God tells him in verse 25, he says, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole. These are two different gods, Baal and Asherah. So Gideon's own family is steeped in worship of these Canaanite gods, Baal and Asherah. Baal was kind of considered in the Canaanite region there, that Mesopotamian region, as the big daddy. He was sort of the main god. Asherah was a goddess that uh, most of the people believed was Baal's wife. In fact, there's some archaeological evidence, some little writings and, and pottery and things like that. We see some of the Israelites believed Asherah might be Yahweh's wife, and they, they would worship her that way. And so, apparently here, Gideon's father has built a pagan altar that the whole town's using, right? So, he, he, he's a big deal. And so, Gideon's, now we can start to understand why Gideon's thinking, you sure you want to use me? You know my family? you know what we're up to? My whole family's kind of gone over the edge in pagan worship here. So this helps us understand, too, why God is so patient with him. This is all Gideon has known. Gideon, he's raised in this pagan home, basically. It's his whole religious paradigm. And he's saying, oh, God of Israel, Yahweh, okay, you're the one calling me. God says, you're going to tear all that stuff down, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top. And offer one of your father's bulls as a burnt offering. And so God begins his mission here with, it's, it's, it's an event of calling out. This is calling Gideon out of the life he lived. He's giving him an opportunity to make a clean break. He's telling him, Gideon, your faith has to become your own. This is not the, your father's faith anymore. It's not your parents. Go and destroy the altar and the idol that your own father made to the pagan gods. And Gideon says, okay, but he doesn't want to do it in the daytime. Uh, he's still a little scared. This is, remember, scaredy cat Gideon. He's still a little scared of the townsfolk. And so, uh, you know, which we can understand, this is kind of scary stuff. He's not ready to boldly walk up to the pagan altar, you know, in high noon and tear it down and I am Gideon, hear me roar. Gideon's not alone in taking baby steps at nighttime. Uh, if you look in the New Testament, when does Nicodemus come see Jesus? Under the cover of night, right? Because he's still afraid of people affiliating him with Jesus. When does Nehemiah, it says, circle the walls of Jerusalem? At night. And so I want to encourage us that, you know, if you're feeling timid here, that's normal. Gideon's afraid, and he only has enough courage to do it by night. But I believe that the Lord honors this. The Lord honors it, and he uses this. See, God isn't necessarily looking for the most courageous people. He's looking for obedient people. We can get under a lot of oppression and condemnation because we're feeling a little, "Eh." God's looking for obedience, period. He's looking for someone to obey, that when the Lord speaks, you're willing to step out in faith. So Gideon goes in the middle of the night. He's got, got some friends, right? Those are the guys who help you bury the body. He goes out there in the middle of the night. They pull down the idol. They destroy the altar. And the townsfolk, it says, the next morning, get up, and they find everything destroyed. And they do a little investigating. They think this might have been Gideon. And so the mob comes to his house and yells at his dad to bring out Gideon so we can kill him. And his dad does a fascinating thing. His dad defends him. His dad defends him rather than, you know, walk on the front porch and the dad's like, Yeah, I know. Can you believe this? He did this. I built that thing with my own hands. My own worthless son. No, Joash defends his son. And this is kind of cool. Gideon takes a stand for faith here, and it's already having a generational ripple effect, right? His father sees this act of faith and he respects it. It's a testimony to him. You know, sometimes you're going to step out in faith. You're going to do an act of faith. And a lot of times you're going to face persecution. That's just going to happen, right? Jesus promised that. You're going to face persecution. But sometimes when you step out in faith, that act of faith will be a testimony to other people. It will give them an opportunity to consider making a choice for God, right? So, that's what happens here. And well, verse, um, let's see. Yeah, oh, this is his dad saying, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Right, so his dad sticks up for him there. Verse 33 tells us the Midianites are starting to amass for war, and now they've even joined forces with the Amalekites and some other nations to the east, and they are amassing in the valley. I mean, this is like the Sea of Orcs and Lord of the Rings getting ready to rush the city. This is exciting stuff. The drums are beating, the horns are blowing, and Gideon says, yeah, God, I'm going to need another sign to prove you're actually going to help us win this thing. And he says in verse 36, I got this great idea. How about, Lord, this is a famous scene, how about I leave this little piece of wool on the ground overnight. And if it's wet the next morning, but the ground is dry, I'll know it's you. And God says, okay. And sure enough, the next morning, the ground is dry, the wool is wet. And then it kind of dawns on Gideon, that's really not much of a miracle, because that makes sense. After the ground dries up, the wool would soak up the water. So actually, you know what, God, let's reverse that thing. And in verse 39, he says, do it the other way. Don't be mad, God, but would you just reverse that thing? This time, would you make the ground wet and the wool dry? And God is so patient, he doesn't say, forget it, I'm finding somebody else. The next morning, the ground is soaking wet, the wool is dry, which finally convinces Gideon. Now, by the way, this is not a prescription for how we discern the will of God, right? I know I hear a lot of Christians be like, well, I need to put out a fleece, right? I need to put out my wool. I need to get God to show me a sign. This is not a prescription for how we do things. This is God accommodating the insecurity and doubt of a fallen man because he is loving and he is patient. And we have something that Gideon did not have. Number one, we got a Bible. We have the scriptures, right? We can see the wonders of God. We can see him, how he speaks to us. And number two, more importantly, that we have the Holy Spirit, God living inside us who speaks and leads us. So we can ask God, Lord, lead me, help me. Don't let me stump my toe. Lord, make my path straight. Show me the next right step. Even if I don't see the whole thing, just show me the next right step. We can ask God and the Holy Spirit will lead us in that way. We have something that Gideon did not have to lead us and guide us. And do you know, I want to tell you this, if God has something for you to do, if he has a mission for you to accomplish, he wants you to know what it is. Do you know that? He is not withholding it from you just to be funny. He's not telling you, I've got this thing for you to do, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. You have to guess. It's going to be hilarious. And don't make a mistake or I'll be mad. No, he's trying to He wants you to know, and he will lead you in a number of different ways. Sometimes it's through the scriptures. Sometimes it's through just the inward, we call it the inward witness. That's the Holy Spirit inside. You just feel at peace. You're like, yeah, yeah, I've been praying, and this is where God's leading me. Sometimes it's in the counsel of people who are maybe wiser, further along the path than you are. You go to other people who are wise and ask them for their counsel, and the Lord can use people to help guide you. But we don't have to lay out a fleece, okay? That's not what this story is teaching us. So we finally get here to the final act in our epic story, preparing for war, which we'll talk about next week. Next week. Keep you coming back. Let me just say this as a, as a parting thought before we, before we pray. In all of his flaws, and we're going to see some more flaws of Gideon, he shows us a bunch even later in life. When the New Testament mentions Gideon, It is not as an example of doubt and disbelief or cowardice or procrastination. Hebrews 11 reflects back on Gideon and says, yeah, you should have faith like Gideon. This is astounding to me, and it gives me hope, which tells me this. No matter how flawed it may be, God honors your faith. He honors your faith, however flawed it may be, however timid you may feel. He honors your obedience, your trust. For you to be able to say, I don't know, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. God says that's somebody I can that's a man, that's a woman I can use. Someone who will say, I don't really see how this is going to work, but I think God told me to do this. That's who he can use. So don't wait to feel heroic. Don't 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 wait to feel like you've got it all together. Just step out, as God told Gideon, go in the strength that you do have. Go in the strength that you have. Trusting that your heavenly father, who loves you so much, he will be there to show you the next right step. And when you get to that one, he's gonna show you the next right step after that. He very rarely will show you the whole journey, but he will be faithful to show you the next step and the next step and the next step. So take risks. Yeah, ask lots of questions. You can ask God lots of questions. He loves questions, but take risks. Be willing to make some mistakes, but move forward because that's the person God can use. And if you do find like that story of Peter, that you step out of the boat and you start sinking, just know Jesus is going to be right there to pick you back up with a smile on his face. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love You. We thank You so much, God. We thank You for Your grace and Your goodness, Lord, Your mercy and Your love. We thank You, Father, for who You are and what You've done for us, Lord. We thank You, Father, for what we anticipate You are going to do in the days ahead. We put our lives in Your hands, Lord God. We don't know. All the experts have made guesses about the way this thing in our country, and our world is going to turn out. They don't know. We put our lives in your hands, Lord. And I believe right now, Lord, that there are people in this place who kind of feel like a farmer, but I think you are calling them to be a mighty warrior. You're calling them to step out and do something brave for you, O oh God. And I pray that you would just continue to speak that into our lives, and that they would realize that they are not who their parents named them to be, Lord God, but they are the person that you created them to be from the very beginning of time. Before we were informed in our mother's womb, Lord God, you knew who we were. You had a story in mind for us, a story to live out. God, I pray that those purposes would, would come to pass, that, that we would that we come to light, Lord God. And I know, Lord God, that for some of us, that begins today with submitting our lives to the Lordship of Jesus, our Savior, our King, our Redeemer, our Creator. Lord, I pray right now in this moment that those who have never made that decision would today just say yes to you now, that they would bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And Lord, for the rest of us who are in this room, who are listening, who have been walking by faith, may we recommit our lives today. Reconnect with you, Lord God. Inspire us today and throughout this series by these ordinary people with extraordinary faith. Inspire us to trust in you more every single day. In the mighty name of the resurrected Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. And so, my friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May He turn His favor toward you and grant you peace in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace. Grace and peace.